0: Today's episode is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school and two-time winner of the Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. A lot of people want to deepen their wine knowledge, but aren't sure how. We empower enthusiasts and professionals to level up their wine expertise with a unique approach and a clear path to becoming a confident authority in the world of wine. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on all course enrollments by using the promo code Stories Behind Wine at checkout. Again, that promo code is Stories Behind Wine.
1: I was a bit precocious, yes, because I was 27 when I wrote my first book, which is titled Just Wine. I mean, wine, the four letter word, which was 1966. So I suppose 27 is pretty young to set up, set up to write a book about all the world's
0: wines. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, this is the Stories Behind Wine, a podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influence the world of wine. In this episode, we catch up with wine legend Hugh Johnson. Hugh has been one of the wine world's most read and influential authors over a 60-year career. He has inspired so many to pursue further wine education and help transform how we think about wine writing. Hugh's story is complex, enthralling, and inspiring, much like many of the finest wines of the world. This is Hugh's story.
1: I'm Hugh Johnson, and I am a writer about wine, have been a writer about wine for 60 years. which always amazed me. I've written a number of books, which have included the World Atlas of Wine, now in its eighth edition, with my friend Jancis Robertson. My pocket wine book, 44 editions, and various more personal books, and particularly a book called The Story of Wine, which is my favorite, really, because I think to understand wine, you do need to know something about its story. So that's me. I'm Hugh Johnson.
0: Great. And I look forward to discussing the reprint of The Story of Wine as well with you here a little bit later in the interview. But I want to get started, and I wanted to ask you, what was your first introduction to wine when did it become part of your life
1: well wine was always a small part of my life because uh, we drank it in my family my father was a lawyer and it was part of his culture really not no great deep interest just regular drinking then when i went to university to cambridge it (laughs) played a rather larger part in various ways and i began to see that there was a serious side to it and actually it wonderful burgundy for the first time, and a friend showed it to me, and they said, don't you think it's extraordinary how different these two wines are, considering they come from the same village, two fields apart? And I said, yeah, that really is interesting. And it set me, out, um, set me off on a path that I'm still pursuing 60 years later. So there's um, never been any doubt in my mind that explaining why to people Helping them enjoy it is something worth doing.
0: How did you transition from that curiosity at Cambridge into starting your career in writing about wine? What was the first opportunity that presented itself for you to write about wine professionally?
1: My subject at the university was English and English literature, and I've always wanted to be a writer. I can't think of anything else, really, but I did need to earn a living, writing. And I was very, very lucky to get a job as a copywriter on a magazine, on Vogue magazine, uh, straight out of college. Um, Very lucky indeed. So I was writing stuff about art galleries, about travel, about about fashion. Then I said to the editor, do you think readers would like an article about wine? She said, well, you could try it. (laughs) And so that was the Christmas edition of uh, London Vogue in 1960. And here we are 60 years later.
0: What was the article about?
1: Oh, you'll never be able to guess. The Christmas edition, what to drink with turkey.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A subject that has been oft-repeated ever since.
1: It's been revisited from time to time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, I'm interested to know, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, what did wine journalism look like back then? Was there wine journalism? Can you give us a little bit of insight?
1: Yes, there was wine journalism in the U.K. and in the U.S. Very limited, very few people. There was uh, uh, Robert Lawrence Balzer in, in L.A. The key figure, in my mind, was Frank Schoonmaker in New York, who was imported wine and wrote the absolute, to me, the first really good, clear, modern wine books about the wines of Germany. And he wrote an encyclopedia of wines and spirits, in about uh, 1966, I suppose I was happy enough to, uh, lucky enough to meet him, and I'd just written my own first book, which is called Wine. And he asked me to edit his encyclopedia for the London edition, which I did, and I learnt a huge amount and had great pleasure with it. He was a great guy. He was the man. Frank was the man who really introduced the labeling in the U.S. By suggesting to Almaden Vineyards that they should put, they should feature Cabernet and Chardonnay on their labels, uh, saying Cabernet was the grape of the greatest uh, red Bordeaux wines, and Chardonnay was the grape of the greatest white Burgundy wines. And uh, believe me, that was a first. And and it, did it did it catch on? Oh boy! So that was wine writing in as much as I knew it in the States, in Britain. There was a figure who was really my patron, in a sense, André Simon. André Simon was 60 years older than me. He was a Frenchman who had lived in England for the whole of the 20th century. He'd written 100 books. He was an absolute charmer. And I modeled my early writings, really, on on, on him. Then there were other newspaper wine art uh, writers, not really critics. The best known was Cyril Ray, and then there was Raymond Postgate, who produced The Good Wine Guide. There were a few, but newspapers didn't have regular columnists then. Or if they did, they were rare. And that's how I got a break a bit later on, because our Sunday Times asked me to do it.
0: And you were quite young at the time. I mean, you were in your 20s when you were editing, helping edit the Encyclopedia of Wine and Spirits?
1: I was a bit precocious, yes, because I was 27 when I wrote my first book, which is titled Just Wine, I mean, Wine, the four-letter word, which was 1966. So I suppose 27 is pretty young to set set up to write a book about all the world's wines.
0: Tell me a little bit about your first book, Wine. What was the book about?
1: It's about everything about wine, really. And its first paragraph was a piece of inspiration because I wanted to set down why wine interested me. And I got off to a good start. I won't recite it to now, but it's the first paragraph of my first book. And funnily enough, so many people down the years have said to me, you know, I first got into wine when I read that paragraph. It's amazing. It was a sort of hook on which I hung everything that followed. It was about variety. It was about why is wine an interesting subject? Because there are so many varieties, based on places, based on grapes, based on personalities, based on national cultures. So it is not just a a, a drink. It is something that sort of encapsulates civilization in a way.
0: At the time of the writing of wine and in your early career, did you have any mentor that inspired you and that you could go to for support in the early part of your career?
1: Well, it was André Simon who inspired me, I think, and encouraged me. I didn't sort of ask him questions. Or anything. I I traveled around Europe and it was part of my honeymoon was the 1965 vintage, which is remembered as one of the worst ever. It never stopped raining. <laughs> I took a whole lot of photographs and uh, I, we'd been a big circuit of Europe. I mean, unimaginable now. I started uh, where I thought the, the great harvest would be the earliest, which was in Portugal, in the port country, and my wife and I drove our little mini miner down there, down to Gibraltar, through Jerez, seeing the, the cherry vintage. We put the little car on a on a liner from Gibraltar to Naples. It was a holiday. No, what was it called? The Italian line that had a ship called the Raffaello, and they. A lot of the Italians, emigrants to the U.S., crossed the ocean on this ship. We had wonderful company on the way, I can tell you. We learned so much. This was traveling in a sense that most people weren't doing in those days, I suppose, and picking up ideas on the way and realizing them. I took photographs in Tuscany of the vintage there that nobody would believe now, how primitive it was, astonishingly primitive, not very clean. But we had a glorious time. Then we drove up through, it was a long journey, fetching up in Germany. With a, and it provided me with the color, if you like, to make my book readable. Mm-hmm. Because if I hadn't seen these places, what was I going to say about them? Mm-hmm. So it was that and a lot of reading. I put it together.
0: So you've authored what is considered by many the first serious attempt at mapping the world's wine regions, the World Atlas of Wine, in 19. 19- 71. That's right. Before you published it, how did one learn about the different wine regions of the world? Did one have to travel or or were you reading many different books and putting it all together? Tell me a little bit about that and what was the impetus for the World Atlas of Wine?
1: I realized very early on with my first book that maps were a vital tool and key for understanding what anybody was talking about. It's all very well just reciting a list of village names in Burgundy or something. But who's ever going to remember Jérôme Maurice Saint-Denis, Jean Bonmousie, etc., etc.? Nobody's going to remember them until they see them, until it becomes graphic. So I always wanted to do maps. And then by miraculous good fortune, a uh, publisher who I already knew who had been publishing my first book came to me and he said, Hugh, what about my maps? And do you think it would make sense to do an atlas? And I said, well, it depends on how good the maps are because really detailed orbit survey-type maps are totally believable. You can't flannel around with a map like that. You are stating facts, and it's very obvious you're stating facts. And I said, if we can have maps up to that level of quality, it will be a unique illustration of the vineyards of the world. Well, of course, we couldn't have that. Detailed quality for, uh, everywhere. We could do it for the classic vineyards of France and so on. And that's what I did. I went to the Office International du Vin in Paris, which wasn't a very impressive outfit. And I said, I'm oh, what I intended to do and could they help? And they said, Oh, that's a good idea. One of our members thought of that some years ago. And we gave it to the Portuguese to work on it. And we've got a file here somewhere. So off they went there and got a file out of a the drawer. they opened it with one sheet of paper in it. <laughs> so all the groundwork had to be done. And it interested everybody once I explained what I was trying to do. And I was the real groundwork that mattered for the classic regions of France was a series of maps published just before the Second World War and even during the Second World War by a guy called Louis Lama. And they were superb maps, from very large scale, beautifully produced. And there was a rumor that he could only get the paper for them if he was very friendly with the Germans, but I don't know about that. Uh, it, it didn't matter because they were great maps. So uh, that was a great kickstart for me, but for all the other countries and regions, I just had to work at it. And 60 years later, or 50 years later, I'm prepared to give away the fact that sometimes I made it up. <laughs> I, nobody was telling me. that Nobody would believe now how disorganized the wine world was then. You know, you have personal friends, but there was no sort of real organization. There were a few laws. Not all of them obeyed. And um, I remember I went to, the when I was in the door doing the port maps, I could get no joy out of anybody. I went to the famous shippers like Taylors and Crofts and Coburn and, on, and said, can you help me mapping the vineyards? And they didn't look very excited. So after months of waiting, and I didn't really have that time to wait either, I thought there's only one thing for it. I got a bare map of the Dura Valley, and I drew on it where I thought the vineyards are or should be. <laughs> And I said it round to all the shippers, and I said, could you correct this for me? I'm not sure I've got it quite right. Not one of them corrected it. They all said, yes, that's right, that's right. So that was the original port map.
0: That is an amazing story. Did you have any idea at the time when you first published the first edition that you would be releasing the eighth edition in 2019? And how has the book changed over those many editions? Well,
1: actually, first of the day, I did four editions on my own, and I sort of fully expected to do that. But it got more and more laborious, and I had other plans and other things I was writing, and it got a bit wearisome. There was one in every six years, so it's 24 years, I was working at it. And then I thought, not going to do this again on my own. I just wrote, and my wife wouldn't let me do it. (laughs) By this time, I was very good friends with Jancis Robinson. We'd been to a lot of tastings together. We'd been, we'd seen quite a lot of each other, and, and Nick, her husband, and I sort of, rather gingerly, I approached us and said, "Jane says, how would you feel about helping me?" And she said, "I have to talk to Nick." And Nick said, hmm, "Not sure about that. It's going to be a lot of hard work," but she agreed. And from the fifth edition on, that's now the last four editions. She has gradually been doing more and more of the legwork, uh, more of the heavy lifting, and is now much more her book than much more her book than mine, and, and that's as it should be. And she's actually much more professional than I have been. With, of course, a huge database that's available now, you don't go groping around for answers to questions. You go to the internet. So, and there are there are Google Maps to consult. You know, we're now dealing with a whole lot of facts that were simply not available, and so yeah, yes, you bet it's changed.
0: You mentioned at the beginning of the interview the book that you're most proud of, the story of wine, which has just recently been re-released and republished by Stephen Spurrier's Academy de Vin Library. Yes, tell us a little bit about this book. It is a fascinating read and quite a different approach to writing about wine than the encyclopedia or the World Atlas, I should say, of wine. Yeah. How did it come to be, and what makes you so proud of this book?
1: Well, I'd been doing reference books of one kind or another for a long time. I also wrote a huge book called Hugh Johnson's Wine Companion, and that went into six editions. And the text of that is, is, I'm quite proud of that, honestly. And then for the last two editions, I had the co-author, Stephen Brooke, who is a wonderful London wine writer, but I realized that I wasn't going to do that anymore. And I began looking at television and thinking, there's a great story here. Could I get it on television? And then television was not keen. The BBC was not keen on wine. Jansis had done some programs for them, very really good programs, but they said that wine is not a, not a visual subject, it's not a graphic subject. How do you, you show people two red glasses so you can't taste them? They just look red. So we're not very keen on it. And then I met one of the great television producers of the time, a man called Michael Gill. And he had coined the whole idea of a BBC serious documentary with a very, very famous one, Civilization by Kenneth Clark. And I talked to Michael about it. And I said, Could you imagine something like this about wine? And he said, Well, tell me the story. And we ended up making a 13-part television series for public broadcasting at Boston and for one of the channels here, Channel 4, and many other channels across Europe and even Japan. And that worked very, very well to do it. I had to employ a researcher, a young historian called Helen Beddington, and she was a real find. She a star. She did so much research for me. She read all sorts of things that I didn't have time to read or books in languages I don't understand. And we built up a fantastic dossier of information, part of which, a small proportion, of it really, I could use in the T V series. I mean, it was all good grounding. It made me confident that I was telling the right story, but the actual detail, you know, you can't fit it in in television time. So when The series came out, it was a big success, and I had all this documentation. So the obvious thing to do was to write a book, and I spent two years loving doing it because then I could really use the detail that Helen had found for me and other stuff I found, and I traveled a lot, to put together a history which I didn't call a history because that sounds a bit pompous and off-footing, so I called it The Story of Wine. And that's what you've got. I love doing it. It's a very long book. A huge amount of detail. A lot of anecdotes, a lot of personalities. even you know, adventures come into it. It's it's really a story.
0: It is a wonderful, wonderful book and it's one of those reads you pick up thinking you'll read one or two chapters and put it back on your nightstand for the next evening and it just one page ties into the next and pulls you all the way through.
1: That's very gratifying to <laughs> hear your view. Yeah, I love doing it. And then, well, it was 30 years old last year, and Stephen Sparrier and his publisher, Simon McMurtry, started this new publishing house called the Academy du Vin Library. And Stephen and Simon said to me, what's happened to your great story? And I said, well, it's just sort of lying fallow, really, because it hasn't been reprinted for some years. And they said, well, could we have it? I said, you bet you can have it, which is how it came out almost like a new book, 30 years
0: old. Amazing. And the Academy de Van Library now publishing such great titles. Yours is one of them as well, but almost revitalizing a lost art of wine writing that isn't just a reference book, but real writing about the subject.
1: I hope you don't really think it's a lost art, Christian. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely not. And in fact, it's a joy to discover these writings. I know in, in wine education circles, oftentimes much is talked about the reference books, but there is so much to be learned from books like yours.
1: I just want to add to that, if I interject. Please. Because the internet has made reference so available to everybody, there's less need for reference books and more room, in my opinion, there's more room for opinion books. Mm-hmm. Books about taste and about motivation and emotions and all the other aspects of wine, which leads me to, if I may, mm-hmm. talk for a moment about my archives. Or will you come to that, the archives at Davis?
0: Please, how did that come to be? And
1: It came like this, because we were moving house eight years ago from the large country house we had to move into a small house in London. And I went up into the attic, and I found boxes and boxes and boxes of My writing, proofs, research materials, all that kind of thing. And I thought, well, I cannot throw this away. Who would be interested? And after a lot of thought and talking to one or two universities, I realized that UC Davis is really the the, um, pivot. It's the central point of wine scholarship in the technical sense. Its library, the Shields Library, is like no other on wine. So I went to Davidson and I said, Look, what about my archives here? Would you be interested? And they said, You bet. We'd love to have them. So I shipped all these crates of stuff over to California. And they said, Well, it came in conversation, really. I did a lecture there, sort of introducing them and my archives. And there was a general agreement that if they had mine, why not other people's? And at that moment, Jancis Robinson was also moving house. So I said to James, why don't you send your papers to Davis? And then this began to snowball. And they asked various people for their paper. My my great friend Bob Thompson in St. Helena was one of the first. So there was was getting a critical mass there. And then the wonderful Warren was sort of came to one of these lectures. And he said, this is something I really support because we've got all the technical stuff here. We're ahead of the game. But there's another aspect to wine, and that is wine appreciation. So the reverse of the coin is how is wine enjoyed by whom? What do they say about it? The language of wine. So that was sort of based and founded on my archive, I suppose. And Warren, as good as his word, very, very generously, gave a, gave a great big check to the universe to support this. And now many, many people have been approached or have approached Davis and the mass of papers is really considerable. And the wonderful thing is that they're digitizing it. So I'm astonished. They've digitized my writings and even my correspondence. So anyone who's interested can Google a letter that I wrote or was written to me back in the 1970s, which is absolutely extraordinary.
0: That is truly amazing. I mean, what a gift to give to UC Davis, and what a gift to have UC Davis make those available digitally for readers. It is truly a modern technical wonder.
1: It's a technical wonder, and it's happened rather rapidly too. I think it's amazing, but within seven years of my r- idea of being born, it really exists in a big way.
0: It is truly the wine writing world coming together, and thanks to the support of Warren Wernarski, making that possible. I want to transition to a topic that maybe most listeners aren't aware of, that you also write about a different subject than wine, and you have another passion than wine. Can you tell us a little bit what else excites you and besides wine?
1: This arose when I published The World Atmos of Wine. This is 1971, and it was a big success from the word goes. It had to be with so much detail, care, and such quality of production and everything else. And so James Mitchell, my publisher, said to me, right, okay, Hugh, now, what's your next project? And I said, trees. And he said, cheese? And I said, no, T-R, trees. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, no, trees are not a consumer subject. Wine and cheese, I understand. I said, who wants an atlas of cheese? So with a bit of help from one of the really big paper companies in in the US and Canada, the International Paper Company, we got the thing off the ground and made a magnificent volume called The International Book of Trees, which came out in 1973. And that really sent I met so many marvelous people in forestry and in horticulture and so on that it became a passion. By then I had my own garden, so I became a gardener. And I started writing about them, and I was invited to edit the Journal of the Royal Horticultural Society or to direct it. And I started a column which still goes on on forty-five years later. And it's called Trad's Diary. Trad being short for Tradescant. And so if you want the background, Tradescant was the first famous English gardener in the seventeenth century. Anyway, so I wrote his diary and I still do. And it's now online and it has been for years and years. It's a gossipy, semi-technical thing about plants, gardens, trees, forests, everything which attracts me in that area. You see, to me, the vine is a tree, or it would be a tree if it could stand up straight. Um, There we have a family producing things of beauty, of usefulness, involving great skills. And I see the relationship between these subjects very clearly.
0: Wonderful. When I was doing my research, I found that. Very interesting. Is the book about trees still in circulation and publication?
1: Yeah, I did a second edition of it after a gap of something like 40 years. And it is called, the new editions, is called Trees, believe it or not, Trees, A Lifetime Journey Through Forests, Woods, and Gardens. Fascinating. It's rather a beautiful book. But I'd overreached myself rather because I, I wrote a book called The Principles of Gardening. Sounds rather pompous, I know. But I really wanted to understand gardening, and I was just into it. And as any journalist knows, the way to find out about a subject is to write a book about it. So I did. I rushed out this book, which came out in 1979. If it exists now, I think it's called The Art of the Gardener, but it was called The Principles of Gardening. I'm not ashamed of it, I must say.
0: So I'd like to ask you two more questions before we transition into some contemporary issues. And one is, I was surprised to learn in, from some research that from 1986 to 2001, you were a director for the Bordeaux-First Growth uh, Chateau La Tour. Can you talk a little bit about that and how did that come about and what did that position entail?
1: Well, why did they ask me? I mean, Chateau La Tour was then British-owned, which it no longer is. And they were the great Harry War, whose name is familiar, I hope, to all your readers and listeners, one of Britain's great wine merchants, with a very great following in the States. He was a board director of Chateau because he was a director of Harvey's of Bristol, the wine firm that had bought a big share of the Chateau. All this happened in 1962. Chateau was sold, and the British bought it, and French were very pleased about that. And it went very smoothly and done very well. We made wonderful vintages there until well, I was explaining why they asked me. I think my name was quite big in the wine world then, with the Atlas and so on. I had a lot of friends in Bordeaux. And so the chairman invited me to lunch one day and said, come on the board, which was, of course, a fantastic privilege as well as a pleasure. And it meant many, many visits to the chateau and a great deepening of my knowledge. I mean, I would never have really found out about how you make the best Bordeaux or how you sell it without being on that board. So it was a great episode in my life. Wonderful memories. And, and the, also, we had the best chef in the Médoc, no doubt. Out. And so that came to an end when François Pinot bought the Chateau. And, well, we were sad, but uh, it's quite right that it's in French hands and he has as much money as anybody could possibly need and more. And he's poured it into making the best possible wine was a brilliant director, and he's now spread his interest into the Burgundy, into the Rhone, into the Napa Valley, and altogether, he's a he's a real amateur, actually, Francois know, He's Mr. Moneybagged, yes, sure, but he also absolutely adores wine and knows a lot about it. So it's all good news.
0: Another interesting fact is you were a co-founder of the Royal Tokai Wine Company in Hungary. What led to this ambitious project?
1: That was a moment of great excitement was the collapse of the communist empire in Europe in 1989, when one after another, the Eastern European communist states collapsed. And it was very clear that that was the skids for communism here. And I tasted great Tokai wine from Hungary. I knew that it had been considered one of the world's greatest wines. It had been the most expensive wine of all in the nineteenth century, and I knew that the communists had got over it and screwed it up as they did everything. It would just become a sort of sweet brown liquid wine. If the wine has been great, if the vineyards have had a great reputation, they still exist. The same grapes are still planted there. The methods are known, it can be revived. So this was the work of a great friend of mine, Danish winemaker, Peter Vintingers who is also a historian. He's got a remarkable career starting to learn about wine in South Africa, and then he's made fantastic wines at the Chateau in Bordeaux. He's now in Sicily. He's made great wines wherever he's been. And he and I have been very good friends for 50 years. He started to talk about Dr. i and say, we must go there and help revive it. And I went on, I came on board with him immediately after the Revolution in the freedom of 1990. It's hard to recollect now just what a big change that was. And we started a sort of growers cooperative, getting the grapes from a lot of growers around the village of Mad. And people, of course, made the inevitable joke about that. And we started from the beginning by being very, very picky in every sense about the grapes we used, making very fine wine. So. Even our ninety-one, ninety-three, we dreamt up the name of the Royal Tockeye Wine Company because we didn't have a, you know, we did, this a new company. And Royal sounded sort of grand, and Hungary, after all, used to have a monarchy. So it started being recognized by the few people who would be interested in those days, which included, for example, the Masters of Wine in London, the wine scholars of the day. They said, this is just amazing how we began marketing it, but we never had any capital. We did the whole thing on shoe leather. Not many people were prepared. I invited all sorts of people to come over and see the vineyards, taste the wine. Eric de Vossoff, was became very interested at one point. There were, there were many others. I had friends over from California, and they all looked at it and shook their heads and said, you're not going to make any money. And I said, "Investors in what we want to know." Can I get out after 10 years? I said, no way. This is going to take 25 years to build this up to its full potential. So we didn't get investors, and we did the whole thing on shoe leather, as I say. And it was all done, well, a lot of it was done, by Ben Hawkins, who was a pork wine man, who's now written a very good book about sherry, which published by the Academy of our library. Um, we're a little coterie, really. of great friends who love wine. So, Ben started marketing it, did a wonderful job, really. And 25 years later, with a new owner who is a Hungarian, there's another story attached to that, um, an English Hungarian. It was exactly 25 years later, or so I read the crystal ball right, that we actually first made any profit out of it. And now, uh, Royal Talker is a recognized brand. It's been it's in magazines as one of the great wine brands of the world. It gets 100 pointers for what that's worth. And it's been a thrilling journey and a lot of satisfaction. I don't actually have any activity in the company anymore. I just enjoy the wine.
0: What an amazing story and what an amazing journey to bootstrap, as we Americans like to say, the company from obscurity to one of the top wine brands in the world.
1: Yeah, it was from zero.
0: Let's talk a little bit before we wrap up about what inspires you in the wine world, of all the experiences you've had from the beginning of Cambridge University, where you were introduced to wine, to current day, has there been a common thread of inspiration in wine that has kept you going?
1: Yeah, it starts with the corkscrew. <laughs> you're going to get the cork out. <laughs> Once the cork is out, it all unfolds. You're tasting a new t- something new every time, if you're buying the right wine. And that is what's so wonderful about it. You know, There's infinite variety and a story behind each wine. I mean, when you get to industrial wine, the fascination collapses. If there are billions of gallons of something that merely tastes of Japanese Sauvignon or something, you think, well, oh dear, uh, we need a better chef, you know, or <laughs> a better recipe. But you could say that. On the other hand, Just around the corner is some inspiring individual who really cares and who puts his heart and soul into it and gives you a new experience with with, where you're tasting the place that the wine is from and you're tasting his enthusiasm and then hopefully you're tasting good ripe
0: grapes. Well, the flip side to that is this question, and that is what aspect in the wine industry has frustrated you the most?
1: I don't think I've been terribly frustrated. I get annoyed by fashion occasionally. I mean, one thing that has always annoyed me is Parker's 100-point system. But, I mean, that's anybody who knows anything about me knows that I think it's rubbish and simply not possible to score wines out of 100. And I'm very depressed by the fact that all the wine journals and magazines now automatically feel they've got to do it. Because, to me, it is nonsense. But I may be the only person singing that tune, you, no, and I don't mind. I couldn't do it. There's no way if you gave me a glass of wine that I could taste it and say, oh, that's was 92 points or something. I just wouldn't know where to start, would you? <laughs> so that has been a sort of recurrent theme of irritation, if you like. There are other fashions that, fashion world, there's always some new fashion. I'm not that crazy about the, the, all the talk about natural wine, because wine is not that natural can be more or less natural, but you can't define something as being natural wine. Mm. It's obvious, too, it's a good idea to avoid additions, if that's what you call them. But then people will say, oh, but what about finings? Oh, you add egg rice or something or other. You don't actually add it. That's part of the winemaking process. It, wine doesn't really work with simplifications. Every time somebody tries to simplify wine, they get it wrong or they you know, get off track. It is a very complicated subject, and why should one apologize for that? Most of the best subjects in the world are complicated. How are you going to simplify music, for example? Well, you can, I mean, <laughs> but, but it's not a good
0: idea. Very well said. A lot of our listeners are probably aspiring wine writers or have fantasized about picking up the pen and writing about this beautiful subject. What advice would you give an aspiring wine writer today on how to get started.
1: Well, right. <laughs> it's the only, it is the only possible entry into mindwriting or any other kind of writing. You've just got to do it. And you, you judge for yourself. Other people will judge whether it's worth having, but it doesn't exist until you make it. So that is the one-word advice. Obviously, the more you know, the more interesting your writing can be, but, you know, there are other things. The more, you, the more you feel about it, that could be interesting, too. is a very individual thing. It must be, and it's got to be. And, then, and if it isn't individual, it's not worth reading.
0: Who are some of the great contemporary writers that inspire you today? Who do you respect the most in wide writing of the contemporary writers?
1: I don't really want to get into that because I don't read them. I don't really... So of cover the waterfront, and I just don't know who is writing, frankly. I mean, I've got there are people I greatly admire for their ability with words and for their knowledge, but for me to pick, I mean, I'll just I'll name Jancis Robinson because we're obviously huge friends and colleagues, and her website, com is the very best thing in, in the business. And people who write for her, some of them are absolutely first class, but there are many, many others I can't really cherry pick.
0: So my final question is, Hugh, in this rich career that you've had of wine writing and all you have have accomplished, what is next for you? What is the next project for you?
1: I write magazine articles, still for Decanter Magazine and The World of Fine Wine, but that's not really a project. And no, I don't really have a big project. I just potter on from day to day, enjoying life and writing about the things I enjoy, as I always have. So... No, don't sort of chalk me up for, with a huge book to come. There will be new editions of old books. But I'm over 80 years old, and I think I don't need to get involved in a big project.
0: I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule of this evening to speak with me and share your thoughts and stories with our listeners. It's been a great honor and a great pleasure.
1: No, not at all. Who doesn't like talking about themselves to such a nice interlocutor as you?
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much. And I look forward to searching out the book on trees. That is going to be in my next read. And I just have to, again, tell you how much I have enjoyed the story of wine reading that book over two sittings. So, over two days. Phenomenal read. And for listeners who would be interested in picking up, a copy of that, please visit the Academy de Vann Library and get yourself a copy of Hugh's latest reprint of one of his greatest works.
1: The library is a sort of renaissance in wine publishing, so I'm very pleased to be part of it.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh. At Napa Wine Again, that email address is SBH at Napavalleywineacademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website NapaValleywineacademy.com forward slash podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the stories behind wine. Until then, thank you for listening.